Hello, campus cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Turner, higher education professional and true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. When police found 24-year-old University of Florida student Michelle Herndon dead in her home, it appeared that in an ironic twist of fate, the health-conscious young woman had suddenly and tragically passed away from natural causes. Although rare, situations like these aren't as completely out of the ordinary as one might think. So investigators began processing the case as such, a bizarre death due to natural circumstances. But the case took a sharp turn when the medical examiner discovered a tiny, meticulous needle prick in Michelle's left arm, which soon led investigators to believe that Michelle had actually been murdered. Ultimately, it would take nearly three years and an international manhunt before her killer would be brought to justice. This episode is titled Deadly Injection. So without further ado, let's get started. In 24-year-old Michelle Herndon was on top of the world. She was starting her senior year at the University of Florida in Gainesville. She was living in her own place, working as a personal trainer at Gainesville Health and Fitness, a local gym, and she and her on-again, off-again love interest, Jason Deering, had recently decided to take their relationship to the next level and start a serious, more committed relationship. By all accounts, Michelle could easily be described as a health-conscious environmentalist and philanthropist in her own right, who deeply cared about her planet and the people and animals who live on it. She regularly donated to charitable organizations, including the World Wildlife Fund and Animal Relief Fund, and she had a fascination with apes, which is why she worked part-time at a primate sanctuary in Florida as well. Then, when she wasn't doing all of that, she would also volunteer her time at a local homeless shelter. And Michelle encouraged others to be like her too. You know, environmentally conscious, health conscious. She wanted them to eat right, stay physically active, just all of the above, all of the boxes. Her mother, Belinda Herndon, recalled a specific time when Michelle got on to one of her peers after she saw him littering in public. Belinda explained to Hoda Kotb for NBC News, quote, I've actually seen her get out of her vehicle in the middle of a Target parking lot because someone threw a cup in the parking lot. And she was so irate, she told him it was a young man, a college student just like her. There's a trash right there. Would it have killed you? And that's just what she said, end quote. Another time, Michelle called her mom in a panic after rescuing a helpless squirrel. Belinda said, quote, she called me on her way to work. I'm going to be late for work. I'm going to get in trouble. I'm like, why? A squirrel. I found it in my road. It has a broken leg. I have to take it to UF to the veterinary clinic. 
I'm thinking, oh, Michelle, end quote. So it's obvious to see just how big of a heart Michelle had. And according to her family and close friends, during the fall of 2005, she was happier than ever and had big plans in store after college. She wanted to join the Peace Corps and go to Africa to do charity work and help with the HIV AIDS epidemic. Belinda said, quote, she had the world by the tail and was riding it. She was, my child has never been happier. She had everything she wanted, end quote. One of her best friends during this time, though, was Jessica Seipel. The two met as co-workers at Gainesville Health and Fitness, but they quickly became inseparable besties, and you could always find Michelle at Jessica's house. The two friends often co-hosted dinners, barbecues, and small gatherings in Jessica's large backyard. And soon these gatherings became regular family dinners, where five or six friends would hang out at Jessica's house and eat dinner once a week. Included in these dinners was Jessica's roommate, a guy named Oliver O'Quinn. Now, O'Quinn was described as shy and a bit awkward, especially around women. And when he met Michelle, he quickly developed a massive crush. While some might have considered this weird or uncomfortable because of how awkward O'Quinn was, Michelle handled it with grace. Being the type of person that she was, she would always try to welcome him and make him feel comfortable. She befriended him. Belinda explained, quote, He said, I really don't have very many friends. He said, I'm so much smarter than most people that I have a hard time relating to them. Michelle's like, yeah, he's kind of full of himself, she said, but I feel bad. She said, he's the kid that got picked on in school, end quote. Other than a friend, though, Michelle was not interested in O'Quinn, so she did not return the same feelings. That's especially because she was already taken. If you remember at the very beginning of the episode, I mentioned that Michelle and her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Jason Deering, had recently decided to be on for good. After four years of dating off and on, the two decided to really make a go of a serious relationship, and Michelle was absolutely ecstatic about it. Jessica, her best friend, told Hoda Kotb for NBC News, quote, she looked like a little schoolgirl. She was like, oh my gosh, you have to hear about this conversation I just had with Jason. They just really decided, okay, let's go for it. Let's, you know, go 100%. A real committed relationship. Let's go for it. End quote. In November of 2005, Michelle seemed happier than she had ever been. She and Jason were in a steady relationship. She was doing great in school and on track to graduate in the spring. She had amazing friends whom she hung out with regularly. She was just really living her best life. But suddenly, in early November, Michelle went radio silent. She stopped calling her mom and her boyfriend. She missed work, and even her best friend Jessica could not get in touch with her. And all of this was not typical for Michelle in the least. It was all completely out of her character. By November 10th, when her boyfriend Jason hadn't been able to reach her for two full days, he was so concerned that he got in his car and made the roughly 330-mile trip from his house in Miami, Florida, to Gainesville. When he arrived, he found himself overcome with worry when he knocked on Michelle's door, but nobody answered. He was even more concerned when he realized that wherever Michelle was, she had left her dog, Duke, behind, along with her cell phone. When Jason would call her phone, he could hear it ringing inside, you know, from outside of the house where he was. And each time he called, he could hear Duke barking from behind the door. At that point, Jason called Michelle's mom, Belinda. It was now 3.30 a.m. Belinda recalled how she felt when she received that early morning phone call. She said, quote, he said, I'm at her house and her car's here. She's left her cell phone and she's left Duke. And Duke was her baby, 
All I could think of was maybe Jessica got sick, so she went over there, end quote. So Belinda quickly called Jessica, and she quickly realized that Jessica had not been able to reach Michelle either. So Jessica sprung into action and headed to Michelle's house as well. And Belinda, well, she waited. After what seemed like forever, when she hadn't heard anything from Jessica or Jason about Michelle's whereabouts, Belinda, too, jumped in her car and drove to Gainesville. For her, the drive from their family home in Live Oak, Florida, was only about an hour, but Belinda said it felt like a lifetime, and she had a bad feeling the whole time. She said, quote, I knew going down there, I knew something wasn't right. I just, I knew. I passed people. I went into the parking lanes in the middle of Gainesville to, I mean, I kept thinking, please, God, please let a policeman pull me over, because then they'll be able to get me there quicker. But it was the longest drive of my life, end quote. When Belinda did arrive at Michelle's house, she was greeted with yellow caution tape, squad cars with flashing lights, and police detectives already at work. They had discovered Michelle inside her home, lying face down on her bed, and she was no longer alive. Belinda explained, quote, The detective walked up to me, and he said that our daughter had been found dead in her home. And I could remember dropping to the ground and telling him, if he didn't find the man that did this, her father would, and this family would suffer another tragedy. End quote. You see, right away, deep down in her gut, Belinda suspected foul play. If her daughter was dead, she must have been murdered. But police, at that point, couldn't be sure, at least not until they completely processed the scene and did some more investigating. Because, y'all, they found no immediate signs of trauma. There was no forced entry to her home, and nothing seemed out of place. To them, it looked as if Michelle had fallen ill and suddenly passed away. At first, however, they considered the idea that perhaps Michelle had harmed herself. But everyone who knew Michelle said that was absolutely absurd. Jessica said, quote, There were so many things, so many different thoughts that were tossed around. I remember somebody saying, maybe it was suicide, and I just wanted to choke them. They obviously, you've never met her. You have no idea what you're talking about, end quote. About as soon as investigators entertained this theory, they just as quickly ruled it out. For starters, there was no suicide note, and her demeanor and mental state in the past few days did not suggest that Michelle would want to die by suicide. So then, investigators considered the possibility that Michelle used drugs and that she accidentally overdosed on something. But again, there were no signs of drug use at all. She didn't even drink alcohol because she was a bit of a health nut. She was simply focused on clean, healthy living. In a matter of hours, investigators working the scene had pretty much ruled out death by suicide, an intruder, and an accidental overdose. So the only other explanation at the time was that she somehow died of natural causes. Gainesville police detective Michael Douglas explained to NBC News that while it is rare, it does happen, that a seemingly healthy person dies suddenly and unexpectedly. Usually it's from an unknown or undiagnosed medical condition, such as a blood clot or an aneurysm or even heart failure. And this is the theory that investigators ultimately shared with Michelle's family, who were absolutely devastated. They could not even begin to comprehend how a perfectly healthy young woman who encouraged her family to be health conscious as well could suddenly die of natural causes. It just didn't make sense to them. Of course, investigators couldn't be 100% sure of Michelle's cause of death, at least not until after a medical examiner conducted an autopsy as part of standard protocol. 
But as devastated and heartbroken as Michelle's family was, they really didn't want to put her body through that. If they were going to accept the fact that she died of natural causes, they wanted to leave it at that and focus on making peace with it. In fact, her family even relied on their faith to get them through, and they thought that perhaps it was just part of God's divine plan as they began planning her memorial. However, investigators explained to Michelle's family that the autopsy was important. It could give them answers and some closure. So ultimately, her family agreed to the procedure. The autopsy was conducted by medical examiner Dr. Martha Burt, who, in my opinion, came in and saved the day. So allow me to explain. The autopsy revealed what everyone already knew, that Michelle was in great physical shape with no major ailments. But Dr. Burt also found a clue that would blow this nearly closed case wide open. On Michelle's left arm, there was a tiny dot, a needle puncture, which was so smooth and meticulous, it looked like it had been done by a professional, a person with medical background. An investigator with the Gainesville Police Department, Mark Woodmansee, said, quote, The medical examiner thought that this injury was done by somebody with medical training because there was no redness or bruising around the site, end quote. Also, according to NBC News, Dr. Burt noticed an unusual pattern of lividity, which is how the blood settles in the body when a person dies. According to Dr. Burt, the way Michelle's body had been laying when police found her indicated that she had been placed there, face down into her pillow, and it appeared that it had been done relatively soon after she died. In Dr. Burt's expert opinion, the way Michelle was found was not a natural way she would expect the body to land if Michelle had become ill and collapsed onto her bed. Plus, in addition to the information from the autopsy, Michelle's mother told police that Michelle was deathly afraid of needles. So that mark, or whatever it was, did not come from Michelle opting to donate blood or sell her plasma or anything like that. So, with this new information, investigators ordered a toxicology screening ASAP, which can take weeks, sometimes months, to process. In the meantime, they returned to Michelle's house to look for more clues as to what could have happened. Woodmansey explained what they found when they went back. He said, quote, One of the first things we noticed was that Michelle's bathroom trash was missing out of the house. The trash can was empty, and there was no bag in it. That appeared to have been cleaned out, so we went to check the trash dumpsters located adjacent to the property down a dirt alley, end quote. And y'all, by pure luck or divine intervention or whatever you want to call it, detectives stumbled upon some critical evidence that would move them closer to solving the case. You see, the trash had been collected by the city earlier that day, but by sheer chance, there was one stray grocery sack left behind, and inside the sack, they found several bottles of pharmaceuticals, a blood-stained syringe, and small vials of injectable medicine. The name of the drug on the vials was propofol, which detectives quickly learned is a fast-acting sedative that would render a person unconscious in a matter of seconds. So, needless to say, these items led police to believe that they now had a full-blown murder mystery on their hands. They had a body, a needle prick, and some needles, and empty vials of powerful, hospital-grade anesthetic that was only available to medical professionals. As investigators began digging further and talking to people in Michelle's circle of friends and acquaintances, they got some particularly interesting information from her landlord, a man named Peter Alcorn. He told police that a few days prior, on November 7, 2005, 
He stopped by Michelle's house to pick up some tools he had previously left there when he was working over there. When he knocked on the door, Peter explained, a random guy with dark hair and glasses answered, and he told Peter that it wasn't a good time, that he should come back later. Although Peter thought this was strange, he dismissed the incident when Michelle called him later to tell him that everything was okay. She said she had a friend in town who had given her some good, strong medication for her migraines. Okay, so pause right here. I know that is brand new information to you, but it was to investigators too, so let me explain. You see, despite Michelle's active and healthy lifestyle, the only thing not so good in her life, investigators discovered, was that she was experiencing severe, debilitating headaches. According to Oxygen.com, she had tried everything to get them to stop. Over-the-counter medicine, trips to the doctor, and even herbal remedies. But nothing seemed to help. So, could the needle mark in her arm be from some type of medication she took for her headaches? And if so, where did she get the medicine? Investigators needed to find out. The next person they spoke to was Michelle's good friend, Jessica. They asked her if she knew anyone who might match the description of the guy the landlord saw at Michelle's house, a guy with dark hair and glasses. And sure enough, she knew exactly who they were talking about. It was likely her roommate, Oliver O'Quinn. And y'all, they quickly discovered that O'Quinn had access to all of the items they found in the grocery sack because he was a nurse at a local hospital. So detectives began looking into O'Quinn. He was a 27-year-old divorced father who had no criminal history. And as a nurse, he took a professional pledge to do no harm. Jessica told investigators that O'Quinn said he had also been an EMT and a firefighter. He told Jessica and her friends that he had been a captain in the Air Force as well, and that he had even gone to Afghanistan after 9-11. But even though he seemed to be a little pompous about his experiences and medical background, Jessica and Michelle and their other friends felt like he still seemed trustworthy. Jessica explained, quote, It's a person that you trusted. He was in my house. If I didn't trust him, I wouldn't have been sleeping in the same house as him. End quote. However, as investigators talked more with Jessica and even Michelle's mom, Belinda, they learned that Oliver O'Quinn didn't seem to have just a little crush on Michelle. It was actually more of an obsession. Michelle, however, tried to brush it off. She knew O'Quinn liked her, but at first, she basically considered it to be cute and flattering. Jessica said, quote, she wasn't going to not talk to him just because he had a crush on her, end quote. Apparently, though, Jessica and Michelle and their little group of girlfriends would turn O'Quinn's crush into a sort of game. Jessica described one time in particular when they were having a backyard barbecue at Jessica's house. Every time Michelle would move her chair or get up and sit somewhere else, O'Quinn would follow right behind her. Jessica explained, quote, We knew that she kind of didn't enjoy him following her around quite so much, so we kind of made a game out of it and Michelle would get up and move to one chair, and Oliver would get up and move next to her. And then she'd kind of wink at one of us and get up and move to a few chairs over, and he'd get up and move to the chair next to her." End quote. But about three weeks before her death, Michelle told her mom that O'Quinn was getting a little too clingy and that he was starting to creep her out a bit. He would call her constantly, ask her to go get coffee, and he'd often drop by her place unexpectedly. One time, y'all, he even borrowed another person's dog just so he could have an excuse to go on playdates with Michelle and her dog, Duke. Detective Douglas told NBC News, quote, he would follow her around like a little puppy dog. 
In fact, I later learned that he called her 43 times in 30 days, end quote. So obsession or not, investigators needed to find and speak to O'Quinn ASAP because they began theorizing that O'Quinn had a potential motive to harm Michelle. They speculated that she likely told him that she and her boyfriend, Jason, were getting serious and that this information made O'Quinn incredibly jealous. They learned that O'Quinn was employed as a nurse at the University of Florida Shands Hospital. After they tried to call him multiple times with no answer, they went to the hospital to track him down. There, they discovered that O'Quinn had recently been fired on November 9th, the same day as Michelle's death, because he did not have the skills necessary to work in the ICU. So essentially, he was fired for underperformance, from what I gather. But while at the hospital, investigators still got some critical information. They learned that many of the hospital's pharmaceuticals were dispensed through Omnicell, which is a medical vending machine that dispenses patient medication to employees by using their employee ID codes. Woodmancy explained, quote, We were able to connect the lot numbers on the vials in the trash bag back to Shan's hospital until last being checked out by Oliver O'Quinn, end quote. While at Shands, investigators also found out that O'Quinn worked part-time in the emergency room at another hospital, Nature Coast Regional in nearby Williston, Florida. So police headed there next. Detective Douglas told NBC News, quote, and lo and behold, there's his car in the parking lot. So I go into the emergency room and I walk up to him. And I said, hello, Oliver, I'm Detective Douglas. Aren't you even curious why a detective is calling you five or six times saying, look, I want to talk to you right away. Aren't you even curious? And he looked at me and goes, oh yeah, why? I said, I want to talk to you about the death of Michelle Herndon. And he just looked at me and said, yeah, I read about that. I said, well, you come see me tomorrow. He goes, oh, okay, end quote. But the following day came and went, and surprise, surprise, Mr. O'Quinn never showed. Desperate for leads and to track O'Quinn down, Detective Douglas then made arrangements to travel to O'Quinn's home state of Tennessee to speak with his father. His father, Beecher O'Quinn, told Detective Douglas that Oliver said he was going on vacation to Ireland for a few weeks. Beecher said Oliver seemed a little depressed, though, because he had told his dad that his girlfriend back in Gainesville had recently died of a drug overdose. Um, what? Yeah, you heard that right. So Detective Douglas immediately got the FBI involved, and the first thing the FBI did was flag O'Quinn's passport. Meanwhile, as authorities were working to track O'Quinn down, in whatever country he might have fled to, Michelle's toxicology report came back from the lab. Prosecuting attorney at the time, James Kolaw, said, quote, It was determined that she had more than four times a lethal dose of propofol in her system. At that quantity, Michelle Herndon would have been unconscious and not breathing in a matter of seconds after this going into her blood. On multiple days leading up to Michelle Herndon's death, and even on the day of her death, Oliver had withdrawn propofol from the Omnicell machine, end quote. Now, more than ever, time was of the essence to find O'Quinn and bring him back to the U.S. After tracking his passport, investigators learned that he had landed in Ireland on November 29th, a country that had repeatedly refused to extradite fugitives back to the U.S. in protest of the death penalty. However, the Irish police did agree to provide surveillance of O'Quinn and his movements in Ireland. As soon as he landed there, it did not appear that he was just staying for a little vacation. Oh no. Rather, he began planning a whole new life. 
he rented a room in a hostel in Dublin, he got a local cell phone, and he applied for jobs with the Irish Nursing Board. Detective Douglas explained, quote, he just thought he was the center of the universe and smarter than everybody else, and he was going to pull off a perfect crime and get away with it, end quote. About two months later, with O'Quinn in Ireland, there had been very little movement in the case. That's when Detective Douglas got in touch with a journalist in Ireland, Sean O'Driscoll. After this, Gainesville police released the details of the case to the Irish media, hoping that it would force O'Quinn into the spotlight. You know, spook him and potentially smoke him out of Ireland. In turn, the Irish media agreed to publish a photo of O'Quinn and Michelle, as well as a synopsis of the investigation, essentially letting the country of Ireland know that O'Quinn was wanted for murder in the U.S. In doing this, they hoped O'Quinn would either return to the U.S. on his own or, perhaps, move on to another country more willing to send him back to the States. And y'all, the plan worked. In June of 2006, the U.S. Marshal Service informed Detective Douglas that O'Quinn had shown up at the American Embassy in Mauritania, which is a country in Northwest Africa. Apparently, he was attempting to purchase a money order, but once he was there, the embassy realized his passport was flagged. In turn, they stalled him by contacting the U.S. Marshal Service, but this spooked him. So O'Quinn fled again. This time, he went across the border on foot into the neighboring country of Senegal. But he didn't get very far once he crossed over. Within a week, O'Quinn was apprehended by local authorities and deported back to the United States, where he was officially arrested and charged with the murder of Michelle Herndon. When he was first taken into custody in the U.S., he refused to talk to police without an attorney. However, a court order did allow authorities to collect his DNA. They needed to compare it against evidence they found at the crime scene. And sure enough, they found a DNA profile on the cap of the syringe used to kill Michelle. It was a perfect match to O'Quinn's DNA. In addition, and to really seal the deal, they found Michelle's blood on the same syringe. It was on the actual needle used to prick her arm. Nearly two years later, on May 20, 2008, Oliver O'Quinn went on trial for murder in the first degree. Now, while preparing for the trial, investigators spoke to O'Quinn's cellmate in jail, a guy named Thomas Rauscher, and he told them that O'Quinn had openly admitted to murdering Michelle. But Rauscher also told them exactly why O'Quinn murdered her. Apparently, O'Quinn confessed to Rauscher that he had killed Michelle after he heard a conversation between her and her boyfriend Jason, where she had allegedly made a derogatory comment about him. Prosecuting attorney James Kolaw said, quote, his quote to Thomas Rauscher was that because she put him down, he was going to put her down, end quote. Uh, yeah, I'll wait while you pick your jaw up off the floor. Anyway, Detective Douglas explained, quote, so she trusted him, and this guy gave her four times the lethal dose, knowing, knowing that it was going to kill her. It's sinister. This guy planned it, end quote. So at the trial, in addition to testimony from Thomas Rauscher, prosecutors Kolaw and Tim Browning pointed out just how obsessed O'Quinn was with Michelle. Kolaw told the jury, quote, he called the victim 43 times, spoke to her every single day for nine straight days preceding her death never calls her on the 10th, never calls her on the 11th or the 12th because he knows there's no one there to answer, end quote. During the trial, Michelle's best friend Jessica also took the stand, and she told the court how O'Quinn said he found Michelle so interesting and that he had never met anyone like her. 
So prosecutors allege that when Michelle told O'Quinn about her boyfriend, and after he heard what she had allegedly said about him, he snapped and made plans to deliver that fatal injection with pinpoint accuracy. The prosecution also called O'Quinn's father to the stand, Beecher O'Quinn. Now, they were expecting him to tell the jury how O'Quinn had told him that his girlfriend in Florida had overdosed. But instead of telling the truth, Beecher denied it. He said his son never said anything like that at all to him. But O'Quinn's sister, Leslie, took the stand and she was much more honest under oath. She informed the jury that not only did he tell her the overdose story, but he also asked her not to cooperate with authorities if they questioned her. Finally, O'Quinn's ex-wife, Stacy O'Quinn, took the stand too. She testified that he came to see her and their daughter at the end of November. Apparently, he had said he was going away for two weeks, but he also promised to take their daughter to Disney World when he returned, a promise he never intended to keep. The prosecution rested their case after showing that O'Quinn had both a motive and an opportunity. Hell, they even had DNA evidence that proved he, in fact, handled the needles that killed her. On the other side of the courtroom, the defense elected not to call one single witness. Rather, the public defender relied on his closing arguments to do all the work. That's when he told the jury to reject the notion that O'Quinn was obsessed with Michelle. But he did very little to back that up besides pointing out that O'Quinn was married and had a daughter, which I guess meant he wasn't as awkward around women as the prosecution claimed. Um, okay, whatever. And then the defense tried to downplay O'Quinn's medical training. They said that O'Quinn wasn't as skilled and meticulous as the prosecution claimed. I mean, he had been fired, after all, for lack of skill. Regardless, the defense's efforts in the closing arguments didn't work. After only three hours of deliberation, the jury found him guilty of first-degree murder. Oliver O'Quinn was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Belinda, Michelle's mother, said she felt an instant sense of relief after the guilty verdict was read. She said, quote, I wanted to stand up and point at him and say, got you or something, just that these people saw the truth. I was like, I had won the lottery, end quote. The judge presiding over the case, Peter Sieg, addressed O'Quinn in court. According to the reporting of Diane Chun for the Gainesville Sun, Judge Sieg said, quote, it is beyond my comprehension how an intelligent mind could conceive of what we've heard about this week. In this case, you executed Michelle Herndon, and tonight, after the sentencing, I know I will sleep soundly, end quote. Just before sentencing, Belinda, too, delivered a victim impact statement on behalf of both her and her husband, Donald Herndon, who couldn't bring himself to attend the trial. Belinda addressed O'Quinn as she looked him square in the eye. She said, in part, quote, I look at you and see a small, small man. I hope you never feel the pain and devastation that her dad and I do every day because Michelle is no longer here. I think about what you did to yourself, and Michelle would have been your friend for life. She could have been your friend 10 years from now, but you took that. You chose to take that. What you took from us, you will never know. I almost let you take everything. I almost didn't survive this." End quote. And the whole time, O'Quinn stared blankly ahead without a hint of emotion. It has now been over 18 years since Michelle Herndon's life was so senselessly and shamefully taken. But Belinda carries her daughter's spirit with her everywhere she goes. Belinda said, quote, I see Michelle on the street here. I see Michelle in the way chimes blow in the wind. The people that have come forward and said, Michelle's made me a better environmentalist. Michelle's made me a better person because she makes me be conscientious. I think, you know, 
She died not knowing how many lives she had touched, end quote. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 68. As always, be sure to check out my social media where I post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Chronicles on both Facebook and Instagram. That's also where you can find a direct link to my Patreon. The first bonus episode this month, exclusive to my patrons and subscribers, is about a group of students who were caught running a money fraud ring in their dorm room. So be sure to sign up for my exclusive content to listen to that episode. Okay, well, that's all for today, so bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by G.R.E. Gassaway. Tune in again in one week for the next Chronicle.